it's very intuitive when you disagree with someone or you see the world differently to think that it's a matter of my beliefs are different from their beliefs. But the beliefs are at the end of this entire process. That's the conclusion. And it really is the conclusion of a process, a processing chain. And when you wish to change someone's mind about something and you try to change their mind at the level of their conclusions, the level of their beliefs, the level of the facts that they're presenting as evidence that backs up their position, you're probably not going to change their mind. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from David McCraney. He grew up in the southern United States. He went to a small, poorly funded school. People told him he was smart relative to the other people in the school. But then he went to university and he realised he wasn't as smart as people had told him he was. He became a science journalist and he created a book and a blog and a podcast, You Are Not So Smart, one of my all-time favorite podcasts, which is why I got him to come on the show. He's written a couple of books, You Are Not So Smart being the first one, and You Are Now Less Dumb, although he does, at the end, we're chatting about that, and he says, in some countries, dumb isn't about being smart, it's about not being able to speak. And so in some markets, he's changed changed the title and apologizes for his lack of sensitivity. And he's got a new book coming out, How Minds Change. And we delve into some of that today. So how do people who believe in flat earth come to believe in flat earth? Or how do people who are anti-vaxxers come to have that as their belief system? So we chat about that. We talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect and a couple of other things that might pertain to business that might have direct implications for you and your management team meetings, your all hands meeting, how you hire, how you might want to hire to avoid bias and overcome the heuristics that are in place that make you make snap decisions on people. So a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed talking to David. I'm sure you will too. My name is David McCraney. I'm a science journalist, a writer, author, all those things. I take what people tell me and put them into different words and then offer them to you either on audio with my podcast, You Are Not So Smart, or with lately uh, a new book that's coming out called How Minds Change. And I also wrote You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. Why this topic of smarts? Well, I think it's because I went to a very underfunded school in South Mississippi, a very rural underfunded school. I was lucky enough to go into one of those programs where they pull some kids aside and you get to read some books and stuff. And like a lot of people who got handed the identity of being one of the smart kids, that became an identity that you defend in a lot of really terrible ways. And you get into a sense of undeserved confidence in a lot of regards, I think. And when I went to school, when I left school, when I went to university and wanted to be a, um, a psychologist, I watched a video. This is the origin story of this is I watched a video about Darren Brown and he did this variation of the person swap experiment and he asked people on the street for, for directions. And then as the person was giving him directions, someone crosses between the two of them and switches places with Darren Brown. And now it's a different person who's asking for directions, but people didn't seem to notice. And I thought that was so incredible. And I was already on a kick of trying to 
be a better critical thinker, trying to break apart a lot of my assumptions, trying to reboot and get out of a very narcissistic frame, I think. I looked up the literature on that because I just happened to have access to it at the time because I was going to school for all that. And I found that the person swap experiment was part of the work of uh, Simons and Chabri who did the invisible gorilla, the famous invisible gorilla experiment. Yeah. In their original, in their experiment, they had people turn in a questionnaire and then the person ducks below the desk and then gets back up again. And it's a different person and they measured how often people notice. And then they took it out to the street and did the same thing. Now in their research, initially it was between 30 to 50% of people did not notice. And that, <laughs> that blew my mind so much. But what blew my mind about it was not so much that we didn't notice. It was that people were very confident that they had noticed that it was, it, it raised no alarms. But if you ask people in the debriefing, they would, uh, they would totally deny that such a thing could ever have happened to them. And I had realized that a lot of research has that debriefing moment where people had that undeserved confidence in the fact that they thought that they, their memories were real, that they were more skilled than they were, that they were better looking than they were, or that they were not as good looking as they actually were. Or there were moments like the, the inattentional blindness and the person swap experiment. There are just so many examples of this thing in psychology. And I realized that no one had really ever written about this one particular aspect of everything. And once I bored all of my friends about this and became that person that people didn't want to talk to at the party because <laughs> I was like, actually, did you know that this is a blah, blah? Um, I had left that world and become a, a journalist. I switched majors and became a journalist. I went through the, all the journalism program and worked for papers and eventually found my way into broadcast television journalism. I wasn't writing anymore. And it just so happened to be that period of time when blogs were becoming a thing. And I thought, what a cool blog idea this could be. And I originally, I was just going to pull stuff from different places on the internet and show it to you. But I started writing about it. And the short version of the story is I wrote a piece about brand loyalty and tried to explain why would you ever have brand loyalty at all? Like what? And from the angle of most people don't think they do, but they very much do. And that just happened to go viral. And that led to a lot of interest from the publishing world. And that led to a book. And then my life changed after that. And to promote a sequel to that, I started um, a podcast on all these topics. And it's been going for uh, ever since. So th that's, that's how this became a thing I was interested in. And I'm still absolutely incredibly obsessed with it, fascinated with it, and love talking about it. Does that person swap experiment in your mind cast doubt on anybody who ha who's an eyewitness in anything that they think they say they saw yeah of course <laughs> eyewitness, <laughs> I, eyewitness testimony is awful terrible it's one of those things that really ought to not be admiss admissible as evidence in most cases or at least it should, there should be a lot of scrutiny around it but uh, we're very bad at remembering and being eyewitnesses and, and creating narratives around the things that we've experienced and there's been lots of research into that. There's a lot of research. There's a pretty vast literature into eyewitness testimony that shows how very manipulable it is and how very easy it is for people to be tricked and how far more confident than you. I mean, of course we are. Like, no one wants to say that they don't trust the truth of their own eyes, the truth of their own memories. But in psychological experiments where you actually watch a crime take place and then they put a lineup in front of you and say, pick out who was the person who committed the crime. People are terrible at it. And they can be easily manipulated to pick people to be sort of nudged in the direction of picking certain people over others. And uh, so, yeah, the literature is, has a pretty uh, has a, a lot of negative things to say about eyewitness testimony. And, and I take that as something we can apply to everything. And we can apply it to every person. And no matter how smart you are uh, or how educated, in fact, the literature is, is very explicit on this. The more educated you are and the higher your IQ the better you are at justifying your incorrect beliefs and uh, the, the better you are at defending and rationalizing whatever it is you want to defend and rationalize. It doesn't make you a more accurate person when it comes to the sort of stuff that I write about. It just makes you better at arguing for things that you were going to argue about anyway. And I had some clients with us today and we were talking about gender bias, you know, and men turn up with a typically higher level of confidence, which gets interpreted as competence as the, I think it's the, is it, maybe it's a book, but certainly there's an article. Why is so many shit leaders, men or male shit leaders? And, and so does that, that it, it, because this is about confidence, is there a gender distinction? 
I think it's cultural. Yeah. I mean, like the there is currently in this era, this geographical region, this this culture that from which we're like creating this podcast. Yeah, there are a lot of cultural conventions that have led to spaces in which it is more acceptable for men to express confidence. Now, you know, as primates, as social primates, the males of most primate species are more aggressive, but that that uh, that aggressive nature is usually directed at other males of the species. We've got a bit of that in our heritage or lineage, but the it's all things that come from that from natural selection is going they're going to be sharpened or flattened by cultural inputs and we just happen to be part of a culture that really is okay with male aggression and a competitive spirit and confidence and overconfidence. And when you apply an even more artificial version of this, which would be the corporate landscape, which is a complete, you know, artificial invention creation that we've applied on top of all these other cultural foundations in that domain. Um, it, there's some research that suggests that, you know, the closer you are to being, I don't want to go so far as to say, sociopathic, but uh, if you want to be, if you're a pretty narcissistic, sociopathic-ish person, if, you're, if you have a, a strong dark triad traits um, currently in this current environment, that can get you pretty far because uh, we go on, for a lot of our decisions and a lot of our judgments, we go on very simple cues. As long as you aren't, is, they would, this is something that's part of called the elaboration likelihood model. If you have usually two paths for evaluating stuff like this, one's called the central route, one's called the peripheral route. And as long as a person's on the peripheral route, which is where we are most of the time, then you will just judge things based off simple cues. And the simple cues uh, that come out of a dark triad personality indicate, well, that confidence must be earned. I mean, look, they're doing well, but it could be an example of a lot of people before you have also used that simple cue and you're just the next person in the chain and it'll get you pretty far until something breaks, like in the Theranos example. Yes. So, uh, yes, it just happens to be an aspect of our current, uh, as they would say, biopsychosocial environment. And there are people that can float about as entities within that environment and go pretty far. And even though they're not, they may not know they're doing it. They're just, they're just taking advantage of a system. They're just A-B testing it and going in the direction of least resistance. It might not be deliberate at all. Yeah, I was very often many of these things are systemic. They, the person doing it's just going just going on the path of least resistance and they're just taking the open doors as they're presented and it varies per first person but it's not uh, uncommon for someone to have never sat down on a piece of paper and or written up a, a manifesto of some kind and said here's how I'm going to manipulate the system. The system just opened up to them. It's funny, isn't it? Because if you look at something like tennis I think I think it's tennis players and tennis coaches asked to describe how they executed a backhand lob, said how they did it, and they were very confident that that's how they did it. But then when they were shown the when you looked at the video, what they did wasn't what they said they did at all. In fact, they had no idea how to do it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or I was just thinking, or I think it's in Blink, Malcolm Gladwell's book, where there's a the guy who could always guess the second serve in or out before the ball hit the racket. Not particularly useful thing to be able to do, but had ended up with that skill. Yeah, there's a. I had a guest on uh, a while back, David Epstein, who wrote a book uh, about uh, range. Uh, ch uh, yeah, he's written several. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we were talking about the idea of practice, and he was breaking apart some of the aspects of the ten thousand hour rule, and which has not held up really well to scrutiny or to replication, but that's a whole other story. But the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, I don't fault Malcolm Gladwell for writing a book about the science of the time as it was being understood at the time. I did, I have done the same thing. If you write about psychology or neuroscience or any scientific topic, you have to take your lumps as things get replicated or not over time. And you just have to go with the progress of, of scientific investigation. But with, Practice in particular, one thing that really stood out to me and was that if the people who are become extremely good at things, the process is like many other things in, in this domain is invisible and it's impossible to actually introspect on it. We don't have access to the antecedents to, of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors to, at that deep of a level. But he was talking about like chess players who become, who are incredibly good at the game can, you know, see a board that's why they can walk like somebody can do can play like 200 games at a time just walking from board to board to board because they could just take a snapshot in their mind of, of the of the state of the board 
And because they have had so much practice, they're pretty sure what the next best move will be. And it looks like some sort of a beautiful mind genius thing is taking place and they're doing all these calculations in their head. But it's just practice. It's no different than hitting a baseball, which is something that we are not actually able to do. Like the, the ball moves too quickly for us to respond to based off of just reflexes alone. You have to have so much practice with that setup, that sort of frame that the very moment that someone's knee starts to move in a certain direction or their shoulder starts to go in a certain direction, are they th these things, even though you're not aware of it, you have recorded thousands and thousands of experiences and you know that the chain of events that will take place starting here will most likely result in the ball being here. And that's when you start your swing way ahead of the point where you would start it if you were just going on reflexes. Can't remember whose study it was, but they got some major league baseball players and they got somebody to toss them softballs. Yes. And they would, and they just couldn't hit them. And so they couldn't get people to take part in it anymore. Cause it was, it was humiliating for the baseball, <laughs> that's right. baseball players. That's a, so I love that experiment. They had uh, softballs are bigger. They go slower. And should the, be able to hit them out the park every time if you're a world-class baseball player. And these were major league baseball players, some of the best in the world. They couldn't hit that softball. They aren't super athletes with a skill set that's so amazing that they have these, they, that time slows down for them like out of a Marvel movie or something. They are simply, they've done, they practice that so much that they know the cues that suggest when they should engage in a certain action. But, they, but they're not aware of it themselves. They may actually personally feel that they are responding to it with reflexes. And also, I guess you there's this big filter at the beginning, isn't there? So by the time you end up being a major league baseball player, there's been all the practice and all the filtering to get to the people who have that ability to take that chain, movement chain, and turn it into hitting a ball. Yeah, yeah. This is true in video games too, which I find funny. There's like there's you know the the big video game network for watching professionals play is called Twitch and there are more people watch that than watch baseball these days. Like it's a it's for some people this makes them sad. I don't I find it I just think it's neat that there are more people watching people play video games now <laughs> than people watching uh professional sports. It's fine with me. You're uh, at least with a video game you can play the game if you want to. But the the in that world, there's a common myth that, that people who are really good at first-person shooters are people who have incredible reflexes, and only people who are like 13, 14, 15, 16 can be the best because you know they're not their reflexes are still fresh and young. But even in that domain, it's just it's just practice. They played the game so much that they know what cues are. are they can go from some simple cues to a, a, a memorized set of behaviors that will lead them more likely towards success. But they're not aware of that either. They also think of themselves like they must have amazing reflexes, but really it's just practice. And it's 10,000 hours is interesting, isn't it? Because the one thing that I remember, I think from, is it Sports Gene, where uh, he talks about the 10,000 hours, you know, he's he's saying, look, nobody actually, you'd, nobody actually enjoyed practicing. The people who, <laughs> the, you know, and, and 10,000 hours is sort of an average, but actually the person who did 20,000 hours might well be a soloist and the person who did less might end up being a violin teacher. But they were all they were all viola players in some conserv conservatoire. So it's like it was a really sort of already a narrow selected group of people. But that's true. But I thought the funny thing was that they didn't enjoy nobody enjoyed practicing. No, I can imagine and, that, and, sure. And uh, you know, I remember, you know, you look at interviews with soccer players in the UK, you know, and, and their dad say, Oh, he was out in you know, out in all weathers, you know, he'd be out in the back garden, kicking a ball around, whatever the weather. And there's, there is definitely something about Kevin Keegan, who, you know, was UK, British soccer, but you English soccer player, you know, he just said, I was never the most skillful, but I was always happy to put in more work than anybody else. Yeah. And for, and one of the other big takeaways from the actual literature on that is for some people, it's 10,000. For some people, it's, it's 50,000. It's very, it varies. And it depends on the thing you're trying to learn. There's not a, Putting, just putting in 10,000 hours alone, it's a nice uh, catchphrase, I guess, but the, it's much more nuanced and complex than that. Well, there was, there was the guy who set out to become a master's golfer by doing 10,000 hours in the senior tour. And he got close, but he didn't get close enough. He, did yeah. put, he put in all the effort, you know, but just didn't quite make it. Yeah. I mean, 
it's, it seems very simple when you break it down. Like, hey, if you practice a lot, you'll get better at a thing. But the, <laughs> but, the, but, the, but I understand it's sort of an antidote to the Dunning-Kruger effect where it feels when you're learning to do anything new, you level up from level one to level two very quickly. And then if you were thinking that you have to go up like 100 levels of experience, like you – you go from two, one to two pretty quickly, two to three pretty quickly. There's a an arc that's taking place behind the scenes that you may not realize where once you get to like level seven, it's it takes much longer to get to, get to level eight than it did go from one to two. But it doesn't feel that way in the beginning. So it's like when you're learning how to play guitar, you learn how to play your first two or three songs. And you're like, wow, I probably can play Stairway to Heaven now. And no, you, you that's going to take a little more effort. So like well, the, it, that's the, the sense that you get a little good at something it feels like to reach the level of expert to reach expert level would should, doesn't seem like it's going to take as long as it will take but for some skill sets it may take five six ten years i had a somewhat depressing conversation with the manager of a guitar store in glasgow in scotland who ran a guitar store but didn't play the guitar hmm. and he reckoned only five percent of the people who came and bought a guitar ever learned to play the guitar it's yeah it's a little harder than it seemed at first <laughs> <laughs> but let, let me take you back to the Dunning-Kruger effect. For those people who haven't come across that, what's give us your ex, explanation of that? Because I love that. That's great. And I'm collaborating with, with Dr. Dunning right now on a new project. Um, I had uh, Dunning of the Dunning-Kruger effect on the show. We talked all about it. Here recently, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect has come under a little bit of scrutiny because some replication attempts are getting interesting results. I've spoken to Mr. Dunning about this, Dr. Dunning, and he feels it's more complicated than uh, a simple article about one study is going to communicate at this point. And he's going to, he has a book coming out, I think in a year or two to really get down deep in it. The Dunning-Kruger effect is often misunderstood. I think the the simplest thing is it's sort of, uh, it's easier to look at it as the uh, American Idol effect or, or whatever, wherever you are, wherever the, uh, whatever country you're in, where you have something like American Idol, where they they bring people on there and some of them are really good and some of them uh, think they're really good and when they <laughs> perform in front of an audience, they realize, oh, wait, I was just uh, – my friends were just being nice to me. Or at rehearsal. Um, yeah. and or, or it could be they were really good in the environment they were in, but when you put them on the big – stage you know put them in the big pond then they it turns out they need some more work it came from research it started with there was a person who robbed a bank and they poured they put lemon juice all over their face because they thought that it would hide their face from security cameras and when he was being arrested he like screamed out loud like but i used the juice but i used the juice and uh <laughs> the scientists saw that story and said wow he didn't know what he didn't know like but he thought he did know and they started they did a whole series of experiments and the result of that is the less experience you have in any domain the less experience you also have in what it means to gain experience in that domain so the less you know about something, the less you know there is to know about something. And that creates this very undeserved confidence in people who've done a tiny bit of research or have done a tiny bit of work or just got started in something. And that can lead to the Dunning-Kruger effect where you don't actually know that you are not as good at something as you as other people would notice or you're not as skilled or you're not as knowledgeable about a topic even though you might speak on that topic as if you are. But the thing about the Dunning-Kruger effect is that it's it's also true in the other direction. People who are very, very good at things or have natural talents at things or have done a lot of work or happen to have some level of expertise often also aren't very good at estimating their level of experience or expertise in a topic. That what it comes down to is we're not very good at self-estimation. And human beings aren't very good at looking inward and getting a very fair, accurate estimate of where they are on whatever scale it is they're trying to measure their, themselves by. Yeah, we. I I often do an exercise uh, with groups where I say, "How fast can you pedal a bicycle?" Oh, and so they write something down, whatever it might be, ten miles an hour, twenty miles an hour, fifty miles an hour, <laughs> and then I say, "How fast do you think the fastest man in the world is?" And I guess bar a couple of outliers, people put themselves as. Well, they calculate the fastest man in the world somewhere between two to four times faster than they were themselves. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, and then I, I say, <laughs> and then I say it's. I think it's 198 miles an hour. I think this lady's drafted behind something, or you know, and they're just mostly they're absolutely staggered. So they know enough, as you say, they know enough to say, or you know, it works with anything. If you say, you know, how long can you do a plank for, mm-hmm. or you know, how many push-ups can you do, or I suppose it comes up in business where a client is struggling in a particular market space. And so they say, maybe if we move into a different market, maybe if we start selling in the US or we start selling in Europe or, and they've got a little bit of data and they just are assuming it's going to be much easier. They're missing tons of complexity. And then, you know, somebody in the room goes, you don't know what you're talking about. It's (laughs) so much harder than you think. Yeah, because you don't know what you don't know. It's the unknown unknowns are what get you. It's not so. It's, the, it's that old attributed to Mark Twain quote. I'm sure somebody else said it, but it's, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and so, what uh, what are the things that that you've come across that pertain to the the corporate world that you find? Oh wow, um, there are a few. Uh, I think uh, the halo effect is probably the one that that gets people into a lot of trouble. Uh, the halo effect is, um, there's a million ways to like parse this, but it's the tendency for measurements of on one metric that people score highly in will then get applied to all of the metrics. So, and this can be as simple as people who are very tall tend to get promotions before people who are short. Uh, people who are very good looking tend to rise very quickly in, in the corporate world, whereas people who aren't quite as good looking don't. Better dress and so on. The simple cues, again, tend to go really far. But there could also be other things where, and this is all based on the idea of heuristics, heuristics being the, the shortcuts, the simple cues we use to make sense of the world. This could also be, though, in the, in the case that if you just if you create some sort of metric to measure people within your business or to measure customers or measure anything, anything you use to measure people, once you get some metrics that put someone at the high end or low end of a scale, we tend to, unless there's some sort of system put in place to counteract this, that tends to be how we apply unknown metrics across the board to those people. It's just, it makes, just makes it easier to make decisions and judgments. But uh, the halo is just like Dunning-Kruger. It goes in both directions. People can have the positive halo and a negative halo, but it's a really strong cognitive bias that distorts our reasoning and our judgments and decision-making in any domain, but really strongly in the business environment. What do you have to do to avoid some of that bias? If you're doing job interviews, for example, each silo of that job interview needs to be double blind. Like, first of all, you need to decide what is the ideal candidate for whatever position you're hiring? What are the the skill sets, experience, all that kind of stuff? And that stuff needs to be separated out from the individual and looked at independently. If you judge a person as a whole person, I know this sounds horrible, but if you take a holistic approach to the individual, you're trying to get some sort of under, if you inter, if you invite them to sit across from a desk and talk to them about their resume, you're going to uh, there's nothing you can do about this. You're going to judge them based off simple cues first. If those simple cues give you a lot of positive affect inside your body and mind, then you will then use that to lift up the other things which should be objective analysis in the interview. Also in the other direction, and and this is something you would think if we if you actively told yourself, I'm not going to do that. I am a professional person who will not do that. I am not doing that. I promise I'm not going to do it. I have said out loud I'm not going to do it. I have written on a piece of paper this morning, not going to do that. You're still going to do it. That's just how people work. So the the best way to get out of it, and I think there's research by Kahneman that showed this, where you um, you just got to separate out the information from the person and judge the information against the other information. Well, they did it at New York Philharmonic Orchestra where they had people play instruments without seeing who they were and they ended up with way more women than they'd had before. Yeah, that's a great example. But, and I know I was talking to one of the partners at EY uh, a few weeks ago and he said now all the CVs that cross his desk are blind. So somebody has deliberately stripped out all of the demographic information, racial information and just left the CV so that they are still interviewing human beings face to face, but the people who turn up, they're hoping that the people who turn up are a more diverse group than would otherwise have been the case. But how do you, I mean, what do you do? Interview, I suppose you do a telephone interview, then you can't see them. 
Well, I would recommend that if you have the resources, you have a different group of people who conduct different kinds of interviews. And each of those interviews has its own specific goal. And then at the end of the day, each of the results of those interviews is combined into a single analysis. Right. Okay. So cause, because different people have different biases. Yeah. And also, I do actually want to hire people who aren't like assholes, right? I want to hire people who <laughs> like, I, I don't just want them to be the best at X, Y, or Z. I want to be able to work with them. I want them to be people who, you know, buy into the the mission of the project and all these other things. There are many things that are important in the balance, but there should be an interview for those specific traits and that should be the only goal of it. And then that evaluation is set aside and then the other evaluations are paired with it at the end of the process. That's the only way out of it if you wanted to apply science to it. Can I mention another one? There's another thing that yeah, I think sure. is... There's another thing... Uh, I think this is much more pernicious because I think we're doing, we're trying our best when it comes to the halo effect. It's a known quantity now, but the pluralistic ignorance is something that I don't think is addressed nearly enough. It's also one of the hardest things to pronounce in psychology, which I like. (laughs) (laughs) Pluralistic ignorance is one of those things. I almost, I've thought about writing a book about this one thing too, because I've, I, I have an episode, it's my favorite episode of the podcast about pluralistic ignorance. If you want to learn more about it, that episode's a huge deep dive with all the the original scientists who studied it in the very beginning. What this is, is a phenomenon in which a group of people, uh, whether that's, that could be a business, that could just be a club, it could be, it could even be nationwide though, is what, what you need is a collective of individuals who have some sort of norm or they have a plan or they have some sort of group-based judgment and everyone or the majority of the people in the group do not want to do the thing or they do not agree with the norm or they basically feel like they are naysayers in some regard. But because there's not a a good way of communicating this, or there may be a norm in place where people feel afraid to speak up, or there may be sanctions where they know if they do speak up, something could happen to them. Or even if those things aren't in place, as social primates, we always assume those things are in place if we're not explicitly told they're not. Then what happens oftentimes is you could have a group of people who do something that nobody in the group wants to do because the, each person who's against it feels like they're the only person who's against it. And they feel because outwardly everyone seems to be on board and they assume that they're the only person who feels differently and therefore they proceed. And this is, there's so many wonderful examples of this in the literature and in history that, uh, Oh, I mean, you could, you could, you could say whole countries murdering one ethnic minority or another, you could say people wearing face masks during COVID. Mass suicides very often, uh, the you know, the majority of the people are not on board uh, all the way to the end, but they feel like they're the only, they're the one person in the group that feels that way. One of my favorite examples is uh, from the research was a, um, a vegetarian collective that was researched by scientists. And they, uh, when they privately interviewed each person one at a time, they discovered that most of the people in the collective were sneaking away to eat fish and some of them meat, but most of them just fish. And so they weren't really a vegetarian collective. They were like, I guess a pescatarian (laughs) collective, but everyone who was doing that was doing that without anyone seeing them do that alone. And so they assumed they were the only person who felt that way. And this is something you, you find all throughout. Any Anytime you have a, large, a group of people who are uh, not communicating freely or there's there's no like system for someone being the uh, devil's advocate, the ombudsman, the naysayer, you get something like that. So that, that personal guilt stops them sharing that story with the group. It's, it's, and it's not just that. It's, that it's, it's similar in that Dunning-Kruger domain where you feel like you do have an accurate assessment of the group's feeling about this. Like you feel like you've done your diligence. Like it seems obvious. It's like when you're in a class, uh, like in a college classroom, say, and the professor says, does anyone have any questions? And nobody raises their hand, but you have a question. So you don't raise your hand because you don't want to be the only person who seems oh, like you did. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just thinking about those, you know, I don't think 50s or 60s experiments where, you know, there's people in a room and how long is line A versus line B? And everybody's a plant except the person who's being studied. And it takes a peculiar person almost, it seems, to raise their hand and say, to disagree with the group. That group thing is yeah. very, very strong. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, in the in situation where the, the professor asks you to raise your hand, it could be the case that everyone in the class has a question, like, but they're looking around for the first person to raise their hand yeah. to, to do it. If no one do, is the person who will do that, 
then you have a whole group of people who do have questions. No one raises their hand. And now the professor will pr proceed as if, oh, I'm doing a great job. No one has any questions. But the whole class starts falling behind at that point. Yeah. And typically, he'll, he will feel uncomfortable before anyone asks a question. So he'll move on. Yeah, because he he's example. not happy with silence. By the way, by the way, you can imagine that in a boardroom. Like, so we're all on board, right? We're going to move forward. Does anyone here have any objections to the plan? And nobody says anything. It's like, well, this is great. Look, company all hands meetings. I, I, one of our <laughs> one of our clients. Uh, okay, any questions? Okay, right. Well, we'll move on then. Says the CEO, and he said, "Any feedback on the all hands?" I said, "Yep." And it, but it feels like you did it. It feels like you did the the work. Like that's the. Everyone suddenly feels really good about what's about to happen, even though you are on the wrong path. Yeah. And I said to him, look, you just didn't wait. You have to wait till somebody asks a question. That might be a very long time. But if you wait, somebody will eventually ask you a question. Yeah. And so he tried it. He tried it the next time and, he, and it worked. <laughs> That's great. There's another example of the, uh, very briefly, the um, survivorship bias, which is another one of my favorite topics. Yeah. Uh, one example from business that pops in my head is the... Um, they ask people at their desks, you know, to rate how satisfied they are with their with the company or with their position or with their department, and uh, you know, so that people who have quit because they hate that place aren't included in the metrics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I tell you what, I've got one that I think you you probably have an opinion on. Okay. Uh, so one of the things we often do is we go mining for conflict. Once we believe that there's that there is some level of group trust, uh, following a model from Patrick Lencioni, you say, okay, well, let's try and get some conflict. And one of the things that you're trying to do, because as as the level of conflict rises, people start articulating rather than listening, hmm. until eventually somebody says, well, just so you know, you're a dick, and at that point, <laughs> then they stop speaking <laughs> to each other. But before that what I try to get people to do is to test whether the thing that they're arguing about or disagreeing about is actually a belief by saying to people, what fact would I need to give you so you'd be prepared to change your mind? Oh, Lord. And if they, oh, say, if they say nothing, then it's a belief. And so you had a podcast recently about somebody who was trying to persuade flat earthers to believe that the earth was round. And so, you know, I, I, flat earth's good because it, it does, it's my there's, favorite. There's no religious connotation or, it's, you know. It's nice and neutral, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, like you're either a flat earther. There are, you're, 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 most people you meet are not a flat earther. But one of, our, one of our CFOs, one of the CFO clients we've got said, oh yeah, my sister who lives in Australia <laughs> is a flat earther. And my sons can't wait to visit her and wind her up about it. But um, like how do people get to the point, do you think, where they believe like this thing that just seems to it, like it's just it, like you can't get your mind round how. Okay, I give you complete permission to interrupt me going forward <laughs> because because I could talk about this endlessly. I just spent a little more than five years writing a book about all of this uh, called How Minds Change, and I can attack this from a zillion angles. But here's here's to answer you directly: How do people get there? And uh, the word belief was really important. What you just said because I think that's the biggest misconception. It's very intuitive when you disagree with someone or you see the world differently to think that it's a matter of my beliefs are different from their beliefs. But the the beliefs are at the end of this entire process. That's the conclusion. And it really is the conclusion of a process, a processing chain. And when you wish to change someone's mind about something and you try to change their mind at the level of their conclusions, the level of their beliefs, the level of the facts that they're presenting as evidence that backs up their position, you're probably not going to uh, change their mind. It's a very bad way to go about doing this because that isn't where their beliefs are coming from. That's not what's supporting it. What you're really trying to do oftentimes is change that person's attitude or you're attempting to change the epistemological framework that they've used to arrive at this conclusion. And that's a different thing. That's a different process. It requires different skills and a different set of uh, sort of like a different one, two, three, four, five, six set of bullet points in the procedure that you would go about. The flat earth is a good example of this in that people who tend to be, and I, I can speak from experience because I went to, I flew to Sweden and I used one of the techniques from the book with the spokesperson for flat earthers who was in the, that great documentary on Netflix. We did that live on stage. And he's a great guy, by the way. Um, Mark Sargent, I remember backstage in the green room, I said, look, when we go on stage, I have no desire to make you look 
silly or stupid. I'm not here to make fun of you. And he goes, that's fine. Go ahead if you want, if you want to. <laughs> uh, I said, I said, yeah, but I'm not going to. He goes, no, it's no problem. I just did a commercial for LifeLock. And uh, I think he said it was in Australia. And, um, and the commercial, he's like, it's so easy. Anyone can do it. And he holds up a, a flat earth. He's okay with that. Let me back up just a second. So this will make total sense in every, in every domain. If you think of yourself, uh, imagine you're in a tent in the woods and you hear a strange noise and you're thinking, Ooh, could be a bear. So you have this anxiety, this negative affect in your body, these negative emotions that you're experiencing. You take out your flashlight and you go searching for, for justification that the anxiety you experience is rational and reasonable. And you, you go with your flashlight looking through the, the woods. And if you find a bear, that's justification. But if not, you know, you, <laughs> you go like back. That seems like a and, terrible idea. Go and find go, the bear. <laughs> if you go back, there's a pure hypothetical. Please don't yeah, do yeah, this. Sure. And so you go back and you go back to sleep if you find it. And you might find a false positive, false negative, nothing at all. It doesn't That's the base level uh, what's happening. Those, these are the things that natural selection gave us for when we experience anxiety. We go looking for justification that our emotions are reasonable. And reasonable in this regard means reasonable in the sense that it would be plausible if you presented that as a justification to your most trusted peers. So that's the system at, at work here whenever we're forming propositions and arguments. For a lot of people, they have this strong emotional response, this anxiety that comes up, and it's nuanced. Different people come at it for, for different reasons. They eventually form either because of experiences they have had or their disposition or what they've been reading, life experiences. They form a distrust of institutions, a distrust of government. And if they have a certain attitude or a certain belief system around what science is, especially if they're a very individualistic person and individual, individualistic culture where they kind of feel that scientists are, they have this vision of them like they're all like the 1500 scientists who are working alone and they write books about whatever they think is true. Yeah. Um, if they don't have this idea of it as like this vast system of checks and balances and vetting and arguing and all this sort of thing, all that plays together into they could also see science as one of these institutions that's included in their basic distrust of people who are, who are in positions of authority who they feel like have not earned that authority. And if those positions of authority exert something that takes away their sense of agency in the world, that magnifies the sense. And for some people, that's, that's the baseline attitude. That's, that's the emotional, that's the anxiety that's bringing a person to go looking for justification that their anxiety is reasonable. You do that not in a tent in the woods, but you do that on the internet. You will find something on the internet that will suggest, especially if you're if you're just looking for that one thing, thanks to confirmation bias and a million other things that your brains do, you will cherry pick what's available and then you will pull out of that these nuggets that seem to be, uh, they back up your your feelings, your anxieties, and your reasoning. And that becomes your justification for why you feel the way you feel. And the, all of that is for the purpose of arguing it at some point or another. And the next thing that happens, thanks to the power of what the, the internet gives us this opportunity to group up very quickly over anything, you might find other people who've already been doing some of this anxiety searching. And if you find them and you meet up with them and you go to, and with the flat earthers, they're at the point now where they have like dating apps and they have conventions and all that sort of thing. Now you are in a community and it's the ER part of flat earther that makes it really difficult because you there are many reasons why a person might fall into a ideological or a belief structure a conspiratorial community whatever it is there's all sorts of ways you can get into it but once you're in it that er part flat earther birther uh 9-11 truther these once you're identifying as a person once you have a group identity that is that is based upon that ideology there's a much more powerful set of mechanisms, psychologically speaking, that are going to create a new set of motivations and drives. And those motivations and drives are, it's more important that I'm a good member of this group than it is I'm right or wrong about anything. This is really driving a lot of your strong emotional reactions to when people challenge you. So when you're facing a person who, let's say they're a flat earther, because it's a nice apolitical neutral example for most people, um, you are not ever going to, if you, first of all, with, no matter what it is you're arguing, if what you say at first to that person 
can be interpreted, it may not be your intention, but if it can be interpreted by the other party as you should be ashamed for believing this, or you should feel like an idiot for thinking this, or you should feel evil or uh, immoral for having this attitude, it's over. The person will stay in what they call pre-contemplation. They will never go into the contemplative frame you need them to be in for any kind of persuasive attempt to take hold or take root. So building rapport up front is the most important thing. You have to it, it, the person has to be on the same level as somebody you might uh, hang out with, have beer with, have uh, invite over to dinner, go watch a movie with, who you know you probably disagree with on a lot of things. Like uh, a person that you can amicably argue with and disagree with in a way that is it's it's okay. If you haven't established that level of rapport with the other party, that they won't have the trust won't be there for them to feel like they can have a conversation that delves a little deeper into their thinking. So you have to establish rapport first and assure the other person that. You just want to listen and hear them out and understand where they're coming from. And then through a stepwise process, what you want to do is work backwards through their processing chain to get to the source, the motivations, the sort of the, what is the inception of the drive and their motivation to go about that cherry picking search for evidence that results in the conclusions. But discussing the conclusions is not the right way to go. You got to go from the other side and this is why, you know, if you've ever gotten into an argument on the internet and you just dumped a bunch of facts on somebody and then they were like, I, that doesn't convince me. In fact, here are all my facts. Here are my, here's, some, <laughs> here's, some, here's some YouTube videos I think you should look at. Like what you're doing is having a battle of, of reasoning. You're saying my reasoning led me to have, uh, to not feel skeptical about this item. In fact, it, it, it enhanced my confidence and certainty in what we're discussing. But you can't copy and paste your reasoning into another person. That same evidence for them is going to be interpreted in such a way where they they have might have a completely different conclusion looking at that evidence. But so that kind of uh, framing is not going to work out for for it. But to, to and we can go through the steps if you'd like. But the the main point of what I'm trying to say is the people are resistant to changing their minds on certain topics. Usually, at the top of that motivations is that they don't want to be a bad member of their group. They're worried about social sanctions. They're worried about signaling something that will bring shame and ostracism to them. And then as you go deeper into it, it's going to be more about the epistemology they've applied to it or some sort of other motivation that they may not even be aware of. And so the best conversations bypass all that and more or less say, let's explore why it is we disagree. Not so much, let me try to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. This, uh, I read Will Storr's book, The Status Game recently yeah i'm meeting with will in, in a week from ah, now. so uh, will, will will's a good friend of mine so you know that just when you were talking about that i was thinking i think he's he talks about anti-vaxxers and how people yeah. get sucked in and then this the, that sort of online status that they accrue so i thought that was but when you were talking about the steps that people go through i was i was struck we had a member of staff a few years ago who resigned and i said why have you resigned and she said well we're moving offices and there's no car parking it's like, what are you talking about? We've got loads of car parking. And she said, well, lots of people here don't drive. And I do drive. And so somehow I thought to myself, nobody's mentioned car parking. And I asked two or three people if they had remembered you mentioning how much car parking we had. And everyone agreed with me that I was right. And there was no car parking at the new office. So I've <laughs> gone and got another job. And it's like, it's like, okay. And so I can, you know, th I mean, there's just a silly example. And then she decided not to take the other job because she liked working for us. And we, we, we did have somewhere for her to park her car when we moved. I can see how people can, that, that thinking about their motivation and, and like what drove them to then try and, see, you know, that anxiety piece. So she was anxious. So she sought confirmation or, or disprove her, her anxiety. What yes. she got was confirmation of that her anxiety was real. And so That's she right. acted to remove it uh, in, a, in a very rational way. But yeah, it's the, only when you look at it. The real reason. Yeah. The real reason, who knows? Like the real reason she didn't want to be there. It could be, might not even, she might not be aware of it. But when she went looking for a justification for the negative feelings she was experiencing, the car parking thing was nice and salient and easy to explain to herself first and then to others. And that will then become part of your narrative. This is why I feel this way, but it's very likely it had nothing to do. With ah, it. that's even more, that's even more mind messing than, than the exactly. fact that she was anxious about the car park. Because anti-vaxxers anti are great. I, I, I went to an anti-vaxxer conference and, um, 
I'm glad I, I went with another path instead of because I didn't want to. Will and I are have been for the last few books have been writing. We're sort of in each other's space. If we're trying to not step on each other's stuff, and I think that's really cool. But the, but I love Will's my one is absolutely my favorite science writer, and I love everything he does. I support him completely, and uh, he's he took a good look at the How Minds Change manuscript early on, and, and gave me good notes. And he'll be on the show. Uh, he's been on the show before. He'll be on the show uh, next week, or he'll I'm interviewing him next week. Who knows when the episode comes out? But the the anti-vaxxer thing. Yes, I spent a lot of time with anti-vaxxers, and I spent a lot of time with the people who research them. And this is all pre-COVID anti-vaxxer. These are people who are against uh, MMR vaccines and things like that. The people who believe they – here's what they'll say to you if you ask them, why do you not wish to vaccinate slash not vaccinate your children? And they will present as their argument, as their proposition, as their reason that vaccines cause autism or something like that. But what you learn when you start to investigate how people – present arguments, how they parse arguments, and what actually changes people's minds and, what, and why they resist is that is likely not the actual reason they feel that way, although they aren't aware of it. What has happened is something like the car parking example. They, because we know this because we've we've tried, we've used all sorts of experiments to, to present all sorts of different things to debunk whatever it is they say. So that if you if someone presents that it's the autism thing and you give them an enormous amount of evidence that will without a doubt show that this is not so, people who will relent and say, thank you very much, you have convinced me, it, this vaccine does not cause autism. And then you ask them, well, then how does that affect your intention to vaccinate? Oftentimes they'll say, I'm even now more likely than ever to not vaccinate. So that was never the that was never the actual reason. What the real thing is happening is they have a incredibly negative attitude about this. Most likely it's because, and the research suggests it's this, they, they have a strong distrust of institutions. They have a strong distrust of authority. They, they have a strong distrust of government and possibly all that combined together as scientific government institutions, especially if they threaten their agency. These are very primal feelings. This makes total sense. They also might have. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a deep. It's a deep emotional thing because I was as you were talking. I was thinking, it's the flip side of sales. You know, when somebody, when you say to somebody, "Why did you buy this thing?" You know, they don't know why they bought it. There was some emotional trigger, but then when you ask them to describe why they bought it, they give you a whole load of features and benefits, which were never the reason why you bought it. Which is, but are always the reason why you logically defend your purchase decision to yourself or your wife or whatever. Yes, yes. And and this was so important for persuasion in the sense that you the real reason this person is doing all of this is that they for, I mean that also you have the fact that this is a needle. It contains what to their mind is a is a, a a mysterious substance from a source that they do not trust. It's going to the the needle itself is going to harm their child. You're also uh, messing with their liberty and their parental agency to do something to their child uh, on their behalf, perhaps without their their express, you know, they have a lot of negative feelings about that. All this stuff together, this giant mental construct and visceral negative attitudes toward this thing, that's what's driving, that's the motivation, that's the drive. And then when they go searching for evidence to back up this feeling, you know, the, the autism thing is a very easy salient thing for them to say, that's why I feel this way. And they, if they find other people who feel that way, and they've also decided that's the reason they feel that way, now they're part of a group and you get an even more strong attitude because now you have group psychology in play. But it's it, also, it, it, in some ways, it's easy to talk about flat earth and anti-vax mm -hmm. because we are not part of that. They are the other. Oh, yes. That's a, I'm glad you're saying this. No, we're, we're doing this for every single thing we think we... we but, but, you know, you just, I don't know, you think about... I don't know. Uh, there's no point in locking people up because it doesn't stop them reoffending. In fact, it just makes them super criminals, right? So you or, look or at just the use, use climate change. Like I, I, I imagine if we're, if you're the kind of person who's like, ha ha, flat earther, you're probably the kind of person who's like, I very much believe in climate change. I very much believe in human caused climate change. I'm very against this, that, and the other. And though you may be correct, though the scientists might be on your side on that, I challenge you to uh, look inward and say, Did, have you been to Antarctica? Have you done a core sample? Are you an expert on the topic? Or are you, do you have a strong attitude about this? And you have looked for something that justifies that attitude. And luckily for you, you have all this evidence that you can point to. We're all doing this for everything. And sometimes it's the case that we're 
lucky that we're in the uh, that we happen to also believe something that is true. <laughs> yes, David, <laughs> David, David. Which brings me to a great question, which is, uh, what is it that you know now to be true or think is true that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, one thing for sure is related to all of this, and I think I could probably think of all sorts of personal things that if I'd thought about this long enough. I'll say from the from the world of, of science journalism, I wish I had known a long time ago, you can email anyone and they'll probably write you back. That's one thing. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I tell this to journalism students every time I'm invited to do a little class on something, and that is um, you can email anyone and you'll at least get an email back that says, sorry, I can't talk to you, but about 80% of the time I've emailed people and been very surprised like, oh, you will talk to me? That's fantastic. So do go. That's, that's so practical. Related to the world that I cover, I for years thought that human reasoning was flawed and irrational. And I have learned in the process, especially of writing this book, that it's not flawed or irrational. It's just biased and lazy. And that's okay. That's actually a feature, not a bug sort of thing. We tend to go with simple cues and come up with simple arguments that are very biased from our perspectives and our level of understanding. And we do so very lazily because we expect to offload all that cognitive labor to a group deliberation process. That's the environment in which our minds evolved to work within. But we live in an environment now where we do a lot of individual reasoning that carries with it the illusion that we're working as a group. So, you know, if you're on Twitter and you're putting out you have your little uh, hot takes and you're, or you're writing very long hot takes on some other service or whatever. It feels like you're, you're doing that, but you're really just adding a bunch of biased, lazy arguments to a pile of other biased, lazy arguments. There's not a lot of crosstalk in which people can uh, communicate and sort out the inconsistencies or the, or the poor reasoning with each other's arguments. So that's one thing I wish I had, had noticed earlier. I learned that through the work of Hugo Mercier, who, uh, has an incredible book on this. I recommend anyone listening to this pick up the book called The Enigma of Reason, which covers this upside down and backwards. And it's, it, it was hugely illuminating to me. It actually um, shifted my thinking on almost everything that I write about these days. That's a book you recommend. You've got a podcast we mentioned, You Are Not So Smart. You've got uh, You Are Now Less Dumb. And <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. Some, in some regions, it's not, it's called it. Uh, you can beat your brain. I think it depends on if that culture still uses the word dumb to mean person who can't speak. Uh, I had no idea that was a thing until the book was out. So, um, <laughs> so I apologize for the ridiculously insensitive title that I did not know would be that way in other cultures. So yeah, those are the first two. And then uh, How Minds Change, that, that comes out uh, June 21st, 2022. Fantastic. What other books should, a couple of books or books that other people should pick up and read? Well, as far as fiction is concerned, I love the book Joe uh, by Larry Brown. Uh, it was made into a terrible movie, but the book is, is one of the best books I've ever read. I also like, as far as uh, that domain is concerned, anything by John Jeremiah Sullivan. All of his books I love. The In the nonfiction domain, I often tell people who are interested in this, the first book to pick up is Incognito by David Eagleman. It's a book all about the things that your brain does that you're not aware that it does things it's doing in the, in the background without letting you know about it. It's an enormously uh, illuminating and will should reset the way you see the world. I think totally recommend the Enigma of Reason. That's the that I mentioned earlier. That's one of the best books on uh, psychology, and also the follow up book, uh, Not Born Yesterday, both by Hugo Mercier, one of the best uh, thinkers in this world right now. And the I have I'm looking over here behind me. I have. Um, my science hero, my hero of, of science communication is James Burke, who had that incredible series the BBC put out called Connections in the 70s that I got to see on PBS in the United States in the 80s. It breaks apart the great man theory of history, but it also really illustrates how invention goes from each chain of, of the process of, of being an idea all the way to being something that changes the world and how that affects things laterally. The book is still out there. You can still get the book connections. It's been around forever. I love that more than anything. It was one of the ways I came online as a human being. And I'm happy. I'm very proud to say, I guess I can announce it here. This will be the first time I've told anyone this uh, on, a, on a show. I'm working, uh, I've been working with James all COVID to, uh, along with Joe Hansen of the YouTube channel, Be Smart. And we have worked together and written a new connection series, which will be coming out We'll be filming this year and should come out later in the year or maybe next year. Fantastic. 
David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's been fab. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. It's been fantastic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.